be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over that. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And I'll tell you right now, according to Dr. Martin Luther King, he made one statement that is clear. We have dark days ahead. Within the criminal justice system of this country, we have failure after failure. And I'll tell you what, we have some work to do. Tonight, joining us, the IRP5 continue to tell their story. Andrew Alberelli will be joining us tonight as well, uh, and he is in the staffing business, was in the staffing business for over 17 years, and he played a, a, a critical role as far as the abuse that took place in Federal Judge Christine Arguello's courtroom. He's going to tell that story and his, again, continued support and fight. Uh, for the IRP-5. Tonight we start a new segment, What You Didn't Know About the Criminal Justice System, coming from the heart of a mother, a pastor, and I'll tell you what, a true voice in this hour. She will be sharing her position, Pastor Rose Banks, 
our new segment, What You Didn't Know. She will share her perspective. That'll be coming up as well. Folks, hang on to your seats. We take off right now. There you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with the AJC Radio team to include Cliff Stewart, excuse me, Dennis Merritt, Samson Riddle, William Williams, and the entire AJC Radio team tonight. Uh, along again, as we said, the IRP5, uh, and we are we are excited about this tonight. And uh, I'll tell you what, Dennis, as we get ready for this, this chapter. Uh, continues to unfold with things that are are troubling, but we're going to continue to tell this story. Uh, tell our listeners why tonight is so very important. It's very important that we get the uh, message out, uh, that people understand that our criminal justice system ain't what everybody think it is. Uh, we got, you know, impartiality. We got corrupt judges. Uh, we got uh, district attorneys that uh, are non-accountable. And will not be held accountable until we, as American people, say, hey, enough is enough. No one is above the law. And so tonight, and as with the other shows, with the IRP5 speaking, you're finding out uh, that it don't matter who you are. Or it don't matter how smart you are. It don't matter about any of that. If uh, they come after you, if the government comes after you, uh, you're, you're in for a good fight. But that's what we do here at AJC. We fight. And now with the segment uh, from uh, Pastor Rose uh, speaking about the justice system. I'm telling you, it's going to be a good show. And, and there you have it. And we're going to continue, folks. Uh, feel free to dial into the show tonight, uh, 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. Very, very quickly, uh, we want to mention the uh, shooting of Jacob Blake, uh, who suffered... Seven shots to the back, uh, is paralyzed. Uh, this happened within the last uh, 24 to 48 hours, uh, and this man was shot in front of his children. Uh, we're going to be touching on that uh, um, uh, further because more things are happening, more things are coming out, more conspiracy theories that the police officers, and this was something that was critically uh really, really benerving today, the chief of police in Wisconsin uh, in, in, that, in that small town where this took place made the statement that, well, had the folks been in by uh, curfew, nobody would, be, nobody would have been shot. Uh, we have the shooting in Louisiana that happened. Uh, Eleven times a gentleman was shot. Um, he lost his life, unfortunately. We're going to be digging into all of that uh, as we continue to deal. And so that's why when I reference uh, Dr. Martin Luther King making the statement, he said that back then. We have dark days ahead. Who knew that we would be living in an era where the 60s, a young lady got on an airplane to one of our trips to Washington, D.C., and she said, uh, I am confused, as this is a white woman, she said, I'm confused whether when I look, turn on the news now, if we're in the 60s, are we in current day? She said, I cannot, make, I cannot tell what era uh, we are in. That speaks volumes uh, to what's going on in this country. Folks, hang on. We're going to be coming back with our new segment, What You Didn't Know, The Heart of a Pastor, a Mother, and a Voice.
will tell you exactly what you didn't know about the criminal justice system. That's featuring Pastor Rose Banks, a new segment on AJC Radio. Hang on. We'll be right back. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now, add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with, especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. Tonight we are excited about a new segment on AJC Radio, What You Didn't Know. The voice, a pastor, and a mother 
who has something to say. And truly is a voice in this hour, Pastor Rose Banks now sharing her perspective on a weekly basis on this show. Here we go. Let's start the segment. We need good, solid leadership. That's what we need. We need the church to lead, but it doesn't. We need parents to lead, but they don't. We need siblings, older siblings to lead, but they don't. We need people that said they're Christians to lead on our job, but they don't. In every part of society, we need leadership. And well-spoken Pastor Banks uh, talking about leadership and what a, what a significant statement uh, in the hour of this country. Right now, what you didn't know, Pastor Rose Banks, go ahead. Yes, can you hear me? Hear a lot. Huh? Yes, go ahead, Pastor Banks. Okay, thank you so much for having me to come on this afternoon. I appreciate having the opportunity to be able to speak what I really feel about the system of this country. Um, I think I was so uh, ignorant of the fact of what justice meant in this country. So many things I didn't know, I thought I knew. I raised my children to love God, first of all, respect him, to respect the laws of the land, and if you always do what's right, you never have to worry about going to prison uh, because they have a system that if you have evidence to support your innocence, that uh, you don't have to worry about it. I told our guys that when they went to prison, I said, well, there's no way you're going to prison. I said, because they say if you got evidence, your evidence will speak for itself. And I so believed in that. And... When our guys went to court having to represent themselves because the government had done a real good job of putting them in a position where they couldn't even have jobs so they couldn't pay for counsel. So they had to represent themselves. It was such an unbelievable nightmare that we experienced. And I discovered that really there is no justice in this country. Uh, Even the people who get away with it, Even that part of it is crooked. None of it is straight. Uh, I often quote Jerry Spence, the attorney in Wyoming, who practiced law for 60 years. And I heard an interview they had with him one time, some time ago, and they was asking him about our justice system, and he said, there's no justice. He said, justice is green. Well, if it's not justice if you can pay for your justice. So I am. I have been so disillusioned with this whole situation. Um, I am saddened by what happened to our men. Eight years of their lives were taken away from us. I am very sad about that. I was told also that they would get a fair trial. That's what our system says. Every person has the opportunity to have a fair trial, take his evidence to court, and if, you're, if your evidence is solid, you don't have to worry about it. 
But I but I found out that was a lie too. So I'm hoping that I'm informing a lot of you tonight that you may understand what the system called justice doesn't exist. And even more so if you're African American. Uh, I found out so many things was a lie. I felt like I had lied to my kids all these years, telling them if they just did the right thing, if they uh, loved God and did the right thing and never uh, and obeyed the laws of the land, they wouldn't ever be in prison. I felt like I, I lied to them, but I was lied to, so I passed it on to my children. Now as a pastor, we usually stand in defense of things that we believe is right and just, but I can't even do that here because without a doubt, there's no such thing as justice. I didn't know a judge could actually threaten the jury that when you come back with a verdict, it better be a guilty one or you're going to pay for this trial if something goes wrong. And she even quoted millions how much it would cost. Well, anybody that's a juror would go uh, in the room for deliberation would automatically think we better come up with a guilty plea here because I don't have no money to pay that kind of money. To me, that was the beginning of the injustice that happened here, along with all the other things that they did. But but to tell a jury that, to me, was as cruel as it could get. And so uh, this thing about you're going to have a jury of your peers, that's another lie. It's not true, because the people that sat on these on on the guys' jury, they were not people that had anything to do with entrepreneurship or even any type of uh, a technical terminology or anything. They knew nothing about any of that. So then, if you put a jury in place and that jury has no knowledge of what IT uh, 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 functionality is then how in the world am I going to be able to make a decision? So you're speaking Greek to me. I don't know what you're talking about. And yet you want me to come up with a verdict against these men, and you're talking in a language that I can't even speak and neither understand it. And so when I look at that, I'm thinking, okay, what is all of this? The whole system is a joke. When after the after the trial, and I'm, going to go around a little bit here because I don't have enough time, but after the trial, uh, the jury, when it was time for them to uh, uh, to deliberate, they asked if there's any more evidence. How is it that a judge would lie to the jury and tell them there's no more, no more evidence after you went to a great extent to be sure that the jury never hears their evidence? How can a prosecutor get up in a courtroom and tell his story of who these men are. And when they tried to get up and defend their their position and their character, he says your character is not on trial here. Well, I think it is on trial if you got me in a courtroom saying I, I, I conspired to commit a crime. And so how can it not be about my character? Then why am I here? So uh, how do you, I don't understand that, I don't get, if I'm not getting both sides of the story for what it is, you cannot rightfully expect me to come back with a proper verdict. It's not even possible. And even more so when I'm thinking if I don't come up with something that I could end up being, I could end up being billed for this trial. So I thought about that as, even me as a pastor, 
I do a lot of counseling with people, and I always say I need to hear both sides of the story. If somebody comes to me and say they got a problem or a situation, I say that I listen to what they have to say, but then I always call the other person in and sit them down together so I can hear both sides. How can I actually counsel and give a good decision on what I think is going on if I only hear part of the story? That's a, well, that's what happened to the jury. The jury heard only a part of the story, and the part they heard was a lie. That prosecutor is one of the biggest liars on the planet. He ought to be in the Genesis Book of World, uh, world Records the way he lied at, at that trial. So uh, by the time you get through lying to the jury, uh, what are they supposed to believe? So then they got this courtroom jargon that they have that you, uh, most of us as American citizens wouldn't know what they were talking about when they're objecting and uh, not relevant and they go from one thing to another. So when a person tried to present their case, they're having objection, objection, objection. Why is all these, and see, if we're not familiar with the system, we're thinking we're going to be able to go forward. To, uh, nobody, dropped, uh, nobody stopped the prosecutor the whole time he was running his mouth. But when you get up, everything is an objection. Rule, uh, no, no, you can't do that. It's unacceptable. There's so many different things they say in a courtroom that the average American don't know what they're talking about. And I won't be afraid to say that half of the jury don't know what you're talking about. We had an expert witness by Andrew Avarelli that's coming on this show tonight a man that I always will respect and thank God for him. Uh, he knew the whole staffing business. He wrote a letter to the, to the, to the uh, U.S. attorney telling them uh, how these guys had not committed any crime. They disregarded it. And he was the expert witness. Now, I found out that the expert witness is, the, is essential to a criminal case. They can either make that case or break it. They can either convince the jury of what's right or what's wrong in this situation. So we didn't have, the guys didn't get that. Andrew Alvarelli took the stand, and they, and they asked him to step down. Why? Why are you not letting the expert witness testify to the jury? You're so bent on putting people in prison. You know what? I truly believe this. There should be... Some, if you're going to put some laws in place, put some laws that you enforce in place. We've got people passing laws all the time and putting them in place, and they don't, they don't enforce any of them. Somebody needs to enforce laws that judges and prosecutors cannot put innocent people in prison. If you have all the evidence, if you have everything you need, you should be able to make a good decision on whether or not that person should go to prison. Instead, they conceal all this stuff and push it under the rug, so to speak. And so don't let anybody know about that. Don't let the jury know that. All of this underhanded stuff going on, and we call it a just system. It is not just. There's no way. I don't understand how we could go through all of this trauma and trauma it was that you're going through all this stuff and simply you can't win it anyway because the cards are stacked against you. They've already planned 
prison. There's no such thing as that you are innocent, uh, that, that you are innocent to proven guilty. It's just the other way around. You're already guilty. When you come into a courtroom, you're already guilty when you sit at that table. You're not going to get a fair trial in this country. We, we don't deal with the fact that you got judges that are racist, not all. You got judges that are, that are partial in many, many ways. I was told about a lady friend in our church one time. Uh, she had a malpractice lawsuit, and they were getting ready to go to trial. And her husband was, was vastly overweight. And this is what the lawyer said to him. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something that you may not understand. But if you don't lose that weight, you're going to lose this case. And why? Because jurors don't like fat people. You tell me what has that got to do with evidence? You're going to judge me about the color of my skin, how fat I am, how uneducated I might be. All these things play a large role in what they do in this so-called system. I don't understand how you can use jargon in the courtroom and, 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 the, and the jury don't know what you're talking about. So, so the judge never informs the jury when the guys impeach uh, the government's witnesses. They never informed them what impeach means. Well, I wouldn't know what it meant at the time. I wouldn't have known. I know later. But I didn't at the time. So that impeachment should have been, and the guys, from what I can understand, uh, uh, I think from, from, from what I've understood from the past, that they filed a motion that when they impeached all the government's witnesses, that that trial should have been uh, thrown out. Of course, that judge wasn't going to hear any of that. No more than she was going to hear when my son, David Banks, had asked the judge when they were uh, starting to get things ready for the questions for the jury. He asked, can we include one question about, uh, one statement about intent? No, you can't put intent on there because you know why? The prosecutor was going to use that they intended to defraud people. That's what they were going to use. So when he asked to use it, and from what I understand, a criminal case, intent should always be on the table. And, Mm -hmm. and, but, he wasn't allowed to do it. So my, she said to my son, well, you don't want to confuse the jury. Well, the jury's up there. If you think they, they're that ignorant, then why don't you school them or inform them on what it means uh, to, to, uh, if, if, if you use intent? Why don't you explain that to them? She didn't explain it. She just told my son, well, no, you'll confuse the jury. Well, you want to make it plain? There's, called, there's a thing called a dictionary. So why don't you look in the dictionary and give them the meaning of, of intent, explain that to them. Oh, no, they're not going to do that. They want, the, they want the jury to stay in the dark, and they don't want them to know anything that, that they think might benefit you in a trial. I, uh, I, I, I'm still, I can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend it. Um, every time I talk about this case, I feel a sadness and a pain inside of me that our guys were taken away for eight long years. That's too long. Too long. One day was too long when you didn't commit a crime. And I'm not one of these mothers that feel so about my children until I'm I'm here saying, you know what, uh, it's my kid, he can do no wrong. Everybody that knows me know I don't have that type of mentality. 
If you broke the law and you did something wrong and you go to prison, you should go. But if you didn't break the law and you did nothing wrong, why are we putting innocent people in prison? I think it's terrible. I think uh, uh, if I could say just a few more things here, my daughter who passed away a year and a half ago, she had um, uh, Kendrick Barnes was one of the uh, IRP fives. He told his lawyer that my daughter Luana had evidence to prove that she did not perjure herself. And he, these were his words to Kendrick. He said, well, it doesn't matter if she has proof of her innocence. She's going to, she's going to get some jail time. Now, we wonder why our jail, our prisons are running over for stupid statements just like that. Why are you going to put somebody in prison who has proof that they're innocent? How, why is that? And we call this the best system in the world. It really sucks. It stinks to the highest heaven. I cannot believe that we call this justice when you got an attorney telling us his client, it didn't matter about my daughter. She was going to get some jail time. And she had proof that she never perjured herself. And the handwriting expert was ready to come and testify. They omitted her, wouldn't bring her to trial because they wanted to put my daughter in, in prison trying to get back at me and trying to get back at these guys. I think it's the worst thing that could happen in a country that say they have uh, have this. They don't have it, and that's for sure. So I just wanted to say tonight, I hope, in, I hope from just some of the things that we put on the table tonight will enlighten you that you might understand in this country it's no such thing and you better not be black because if you are, you surely don't stand a chance as they did to our guys. But we're going to keep fighting this matter until we win. And I appreciate the time that they've given me to come on and speak to this. Hopefully I'll have more to say next time uh, because this is a long story. You can't do it in one night. It's impossible. But thank you for giving me the chance and the opportunity to speak to this. I appreciate it. And thank you, Pastor Banks. Ladies and gentlemen, you want to tune in every week. Uh, on the top of our show, uh, Pastor Banks, uh, we started a new segment uh, for her voice to be heard, what you didn't know about the criminal justice system. A mother, a pastor, and a voice speaks out about a broken criminal justice system. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot more to come uh, from the voice, and we're going to deal with that uh, every week on this show. Uh, on the other side of the break, we're coming back. Um, Andrew Avarelli, he has a lot to say. We're going to have him on the other side of this break. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. 
About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. I'll be honest. Your resume, I don't want to amuse you. I know. Okay, so what would you bring to my company? What do you need? I need a hard worker. Good. I've got two part-time jobs and I help my parents pay the bills. I need problem-solving skills. I got through high school without a car, a phone, or a computer. No college degree, though. Not yet, but... Life's taught me a lot, and I'm ready for more. Well, you're not the typical kind of candidate that I hire. But you are exactly what I'm looking for. Your company could be missing out on the candidates it needs most. Learn how to find, cultivate, and train a great pool of untapped talent at gradsoflife.org. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A Just Cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. A barred police officer who shot and killed a man. When I first saw the Oscar Grant footage, like a lot of people here in Oakland, I was outraged. As soon as I heard about it and I went online and I seen what had happened, tears came down my eyes. It was something that was very alarming as a police officer and as a citizen of Oakland. It was like such a blatant murder. You have a city in trauma. Anyone that's seen that and looks at it is in trauma. My hope is that people will express their concern with police brutality, but they will do so in constructive ways that don't include violence. We cannot perpetrate this cycle of harm and violence in this community. Because we do have to live here and they terrorize the city and it's only going to make it worse for us. They killed our young black You can protest, you can try to make a change, but there is a positive way you can do it. And make sure we let the police know and they're aware that stuff ain't right out here. We're trying to fix it. In a way that is about using your voice for justice and making Oakland a safer place for everyone to live and get along as one. Violence is not just violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. I don't have to tell you about the challenges we face every day. That would be like preaching to the choir. Today you have a chance to face the challenge of your risk for diabetes. 
My dad had diabetes, and one in four U.S. adults are at risk, myself included. If you're older than 45 or African-American, that risk increases. So here's a chance to ask yourself, what can I do? Talk to your doctor about getting screened and know what your options are. Learn more at AskScreenKnow.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. And uh, I'll tell you what, the new segment, What You Didn't Know About the Criminal Justice System, a pastor, a mother, and a voice. Uh, Featuring Pastor Rose Banks every week on this program, tune in as she tells her story from her perspective and what she has lived. It's definitely information that we need to know, and and, uh, we look forward to that on a weekly basis. Folks, feel free to dial into this show tonight at 646 200-0628-646-200-0628. And right now, uh, it is my happy privilege uh, to welcome to this show Andrew Abarelli, uh, a gentleman that, uh, I'll tell you what, uh, is a, a strong supporter of the IRP-5 and believes uh, in uh, the wrong that happened and is he's equally outraged as we are. Uh, for what we saw. He's going to tell his story, his experience doing this IRP-5 case. And, uh, Andrew, welcome to our program tonight. Good evening. Lamont, thank you for having me. And thank you for taking time, uh, Andrew, out of your schedule. A lot to tell here. Uh, And uh, David uh, uh, Banks uh, is here, the entire IRP-5. They may have a couple of things to say to you right now because, as I said, a stench supporter of justice and without question saw with your own eyes uh this story unfold in a way uh that is horrific uh, when it comes to the criminal justice system of this country david did you have something you wanted to say uh this is david banks to uh to andrew yeah we wanted to i want to start off by thanking you for uh supporting us uh through this uh long and arduous uh process that we uh we went through with the court uh Obviously, it was a difficult undertaking. Uh, we had attorneys that really didn't want to support us. Uh, it was apparent they were uh, on the government's payroll, which is not only apparent, that's what happens because the court had to pay these, pay these people. And, and so, like you said, you are uh, pretty much committed to the people who are paying your checks. They were not committed to us. But to have somebody from the staffing industry to step up and really speak about what the staffing industry was about was of critical importance. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, the judge, Judge Arguello, knew that. uh, AUSA Kirsch knew that. And they were not going to give you a chance to testify because, in fact, it would have ruined their case. It would have destroyed their case because the truth of the staffing industry, the staffing industry practices, all of that was at play, and that's where we needed to present a strong defense uh, along those. That particular battle line was deprived us. Uh, uh, deprived, we were deprived of that in trial by Judge Arguello and, and AUSA Kirsch. And and l- let me be clear that it was a violation of the law, a clear violation of the law. Uh, judicial complaints were filed. Uh, the courts didn't uphold it, but it was a clear, 100% black and white violation 
of the law and the U.S. Constitution. And they allowed us to not present, to present a complete defense. And in doing so, they ensured that uh, we were wrongly convicted and sent to prison. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, it was a conspiracy to do so. So your, uh, your letter to uh, U.S. Attorney John Walsh, uh, we'll discuss some of that tonight. And like I said, we're grateful uh, for your support and continuing support. Thank you. You bet, David. Thank you for, for the introduction. You know, first let's start off by, by sharing that, you know, we, we need to apologize because I wasn't capable or able to tell my story, and unfortunately eight years of your life was taken away. America mm-hmm. failed, and the Ameri- experiment that is called America, we have to take a long, hard look at it and say it's failing. What we set out to do in 1776, in 2020, our little experiment isn't working when people like yourself are wrongfully convicted. And we can't have a voice and put forth evidence that says you didn't do anything wrong. And, you know, it's a bigger problem because I think if we look at a compass and in 1776 when we set out our Constitution – and we look at where we were in 2010, we are miles away from what we actually originally started to do. And unfortunately, again, I apologize profusely for myself and America that, you know, eight years of your life was taken away and some good men went to prison for no reason. No, and that's, that's definitely true. Andrew Lamont Banks here. Uh, A couple of questions for you as, as Pastor Banks alluded to earlier, I think a lot of people were at a point of shock uh, when you, especially in this case, uh, we were raised to believe that if you just do the right thing, don't break the law, do what you need to do, uh, that justice would prevail. That is the statements that we're taught from, from uh, grade school up through high school, college, if that's the case. Answer this, Andrew, as you saw this case unfold as it did, uh, what emotions did you go through when you were dealing with that, knowing that, man, as you said, America failed here, the criminal justice system failed, what did that do to you as far as your belief in this system and a way to combat what we're dealing with in this country right now? Uh, So you've hit the nail on the head for me because this is been eight years, 10 years of of going through this emotion, and it's such an unfortunate, you know, just circumstance. And I, before I got on, I was thinking about the moment we were in the federal court room. They called my name. It's a long walk up to the, to testify. I mean, it feels like it's a mile. It's probably 10 yards, but in my mind, I'm thinking I get to tell my story. And once I tell my story, there's irrefutable evidence, business practices. I'll be able to testify and tell them exactly these guys didn't do anything wrong. Unfortunately, I get up, I sit down in the chair, and the motions are made, and I'm ejected before I even get to talk. And that's an injustice bigger than anything else I've ever experienced in my life. Right. Uh, and I think what's, what's troubling about that, uh, Andrew, is that why, how is it 
that a person that can come on and speak the facts that uh, this gentleman has been in the industry for several years. Is it, is it the fact that had that information been given, which I believe, a jury would have had to say, wait a minute, this is an expert in this field. If he takes the stand and says nothing here was wrong, you're looking at a not guilty verdict. I think these folks... Go ahead, Andrew. I, I, Lamont, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. You know, I wouldn't say the case hinged, hinged on my testimony, but I was one of their biggest threats in this case because mm-hmm. the information and the testimony I was going to provide was irrefutable. I've been doing mm-hmm. this for a long time, and what transpired was not anything different than an industry business practice. That's the unfortunate aspect of this case, and it's one that that really bothers me greatly, because if they let the white guy talk, they lose the case. And that's what they they hinge their case on, because they were going to make every motion not to get the guy to speak. Because if I spoke, they would come back as an innocent plea. Not guilty. Well, absolutely, and I think the sickness of that uh, is all you were going to do was tell the truth. Yeah, there was so no, we, there was no there was no gleaning, or we weren't going to gloss anything. We were saying this is normal business practices. Staffing firms do this every day. We do it every day. There's companies that go bankrupt every day. They don't pay the staffing firms. That happens. That's a normal business practice. We write off the bad debt, and we keep moving on. I still don't know why I couldn't testify. You know, I've I've spoken to many friends that are attorneys, and I'm like, hey, why? And they're like, you you could have reversed the the decision, and the jury would have came back with a not guilty plea. And that's frustrating. Wow. Because someone went to, to you know, five guys went to prison, one of them for eight years. Think about that. Let that set in. And that's why I'm sure. telling you, the American, the experiment that's America, it is broken. It is. Absolutely. It, we got to start over. No, for sure. And and the understanding is is that justice. Is supposed to be the number one priority. Truth is supposed to be the number one priority. And it's supposed to be fair on both sides. The process, the government of the United States was able to put on their theory of a case. And at every turn, including what happened to you, Andrew, at every turn, the defense was knocked down within, with given the, the unfair advantage to the government of the United States. That is absolutely insanity at its highest level. David? Well, and I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, what they deprived us of is the Sixth Amendment. Uh, We went over some Supreme Court law, uh, specifically uh, the Supreme Court, and they're explaining the Sixth Amendment. This uh, This is not complicated. The Sixth Amendment, it says in plain terms, 
is the right to present a defense, the right to present the defendant's version of the facts, as well as the prosecutions to the jury, so it may decide where the truth lies. Uh, They went on to say, uh, the truth is more likely to be arrived at by hearing the testimony of all persons of competent understanding who may seem to have knowledge of the facts involved in the case. And leaving the credit and the weight of such testimony to be t- determined by the jury or by the court if, 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 you're, if you're actually having a bench trial. Now, what Judge Arguello did and Kirsch, as you said earlier, their goal was to ensure our conviction. As I said on previous shows, if we had a, uh, won a case against the United States government, as African-American, uh, in essence, pro se defendants, the prosecutor uh, likely would have been the laughing stock of the legal community. And nobody was going to let that happen. So all of his crony friends, including the judge, got together to ensure that we were convicted and in the process deprived us of our right to complete, I mean, to present a complete defense. The case was predicated on our dealings with staffing companies. How is it that a, a CEO of a sizable staffing company is not permitted to testify on our behalf uh, to let the jury know that we did nothing wrong and, and our dealings with staffing companies was consistent with standard industry practices? And so... This was just an egregious misconduct. As I said, it was a 100% violation of law. You just heard what the Supreme Court said uh, in Washington, v. Texas. This was a violation of the law. And like I said, we filed judicial complaints. Nobody did anything. Now, we're going to be going in to uh, want to be talking to you uh, about the staffing industry, actually what the government set forth, uh, discuss uh, things in your letter, to the prosecutor and then also let uh, allow you to do some free uh, free flowing type of uh, commentary uh, on the questions and the issues in our in our case. Uh, and then, so we'll be able to get into some of that coming up. But like I said, again, uh, what occurred here was, was just a, a travesty of justice. And we have to have this story told because we believe it, it is common practice by not all government officials, but select government officials in the justice system who abuse their power and want to want to take people down for whatever whatever was ever motivating them, whether they're being paid, I just don't know. But it just seems it just seems crazy to me that uh, judge and prosecutors would do that to not allow evidence to come in that is relevant to the truth of the matter being heard. No, absolutely. Um... Andrew, uh, we're going to be respectful of your time tonight. So we got, as David just alluded to, uh, quite a few things to dig into tonight. Uh, if there's any any what, any uh, situation where you got to step away or something's going on, uh, you let us know. We're going to yield ourselves to your time, uh, understanding you are a busy individual. But your voice in this situation, we cannot thank you enough for coming on this show tonight uh, to share your perspective. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, uh, stretch your legs a little bit uh, Uh, To our listeners, Andrew, we're coming right back. We're going to dig into what David just said. 
Uh, Andrew Avarelli, uh, an expert in the field of staffing companies, uh, doing uh, some really, really good things. Uh, and I'll tell you what, uh, knows enough, experienced enough, that could have shifted the mind of a jury. And it was deprived in the RP5 case. Uh, Mr. Andrew Everelli coming back with us on AJC Radio with the IRP5, the story of injustice rolls on. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they face. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in the Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything. His family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. What's up, y'all? It's your boy Kevin on stage, and I'm afraid I'll be killed by police. Not all police, just one police officer who fears first life and thinks I have a gun. I'm afraid I'll match the description of someone who called 911. The police will arrive, and before I know it, I'll be dead. Not all cops are bad, but for me, all it takes is one who is afraid for his life, and that leaves me dead. He could have had a pristine record up until that, but if he's afraid that day, that means it's the end for me. He could have been a bad cop his whole entire career and not be afraid. That means the end for me. I used to think this wouldn't happen to me because I'm a law-abiding citizen. I won't ever be doing anything or be anywhere I shouldn't be. I'll comply with officers. But that doesn't always seem to be the case. Here's some examples of what black people were doing when they were killed by police. Selling CDs outside of a supermarket. Selling cigarettes outside of a corner store. Walking home with a friend. Missing a front license plate. Riding a commuter train. Holding a fake gun in a park in Ohio. Holding a fake gun in a Walmart in Ohio. Holding a fake gun in Virginia calling for help after a car accident, driving with a broken brake light, failing to signal a lane change, walking away from police, walking toward police, running to the bathroom in your apartment building, walking up the stairwell of your apartment building, sitting in your car before your bachelor party, holding your wallet, not wearing a seatbelt in police custody, attending a birthday party, laughing. The thing that makes me most afraid is I'll be afraid. I don't know what I'll do if a police officer has a gun pointed at me and is shouting instructions. I'm afraid I'll move too fast, too slow, not fast enough. I'll reach for something he asked me to reach for, and he'll think it's a gun. I'm afraid I won't be calm, and me not being calm could be the end of me. I'm afraid that I can die in front of my wife or children or both. I'm afraid my children will be somewhere without me and suffer the same fate. I'm afraid the police officer will be in plain clothing so they won't even recognize that this is a police officer and they don't respect him and treat him like the authority he is because they don't know he is. And here's what's going to happen if I die. 
People will comment on a post about me, and here's what they'll say. If he would have just done this, he would be alive today. If he would have just done that, he'd be alive today. All you have to do is listen to police, and you'll be fine. If he would have just listened to the officer's orders, he'd be here today. If you care so much, why don't you care about what's happening in Chicago? What about black-on-black crime? Don't you care about that? The media will find the worst picture of me to use, and since I don't have any brushes with the law or mugshots, they'll find the most menacing or intimidating photo they can use. They won't use any of my wife or children or my family because that doesn't tell the story that they want to tell. Tammy Lauren will get on TV and tell them it was my fault or Glenn Beck or Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh will get on the radio. Fox News will have a field day with me. They'll say we don't have all the facts. The video doesn't clearly show. You don't know. What if he was? It looked like he was. You can't tell clearly. We can't see what's in his right hand or left hand. You don't know what the officers were feeling. The NRA won't protect me or protest my death, even if I say I'm a licensed gun owner and I tell the police officer that when he pulls me over. The video will be posted all over the internet in a matter of seconds, and whether or not you want to see it, you will see my dead body lying on the ground or a video of an officer shooting me or me dying live on Facebook. And then people will say it's not about race. We're all one people. All lives matter. And then... Life will go on. That's the scariest thing. After a while, life will go on. The officers may or may not get arrested. More than likely, they won't be convicted. More than likely, they won't even be indicted. And before you can totally mourn my death, it'll happen again. That's why I'm afraid. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight, where we are continuing to unmask, if you will, the criminal justice system in the RP5 case. And tonight is our privilege, our honor, to be joined by Andrew Avarelli tonight, that I'll tell you what, if you're looking for somebody that could have shifted the decision, uh, and I believe that without, without a doubt that his testimony could have made a huge difference He's taking time out of his schedule tonight to join us. And, Mr. Averelli, thank you so much, Andrew, for taking time out of your schedule to be part of this show that we can dig and get into the story that needs to be told. We appreciate that so very much here at AJC Radio. My privilege. My privilege. Okay. And, Andrew, the guys, uh, very quickly, uh, and we're going to get into the story. We got right into the heart of it, but the remaining IRP5 wanted to give their sincere thanks to you uh, I guess we can't throw a parade right now with the pandemic, but we want to say a very special thank you uh, on behalf of AJC Radio, a Just Cause organization. And I'm going to let them say thank you to you right before we get into this story. Demetrius, go ahead. Hey, Andrew, this is Demetrius, man. Just good to ha- hear your voice again. So I want to give you a special shout out. Just thank you so much for believing in our story. And I still remember that day, as you alluded to earlier. Uh, the excitement, to see your excitement uh, to come to our defense, man. I will never, ever uh, forget that. Internally grateful to you, and I uh, just appreciate you being coming on the show with us tonight, man. God bless you, and we need to do lunch here soon. Amen. Amen. Kendrick. Hey, Andrew, this is uh, Kendrick Barnes, and I would say you don't have to apologize to any of us, and it would be more criminal for me not to say thank you for what you did for us and what you what you attempted to do because the government won't let you speak but uh i really want to just uh put a heartfelt thank you because there were 
we had witnesses that were on our witness that would but were trying to do everything they could to get out of testifying. But I thank you that you are brave enough to not be afraid of the government and to say, you know what, I'm going to speak the truth for, uh, for these guys' behalf, and I just want to thank you so much for that. Again, I apologize that, unfortunately, time was taken away from your life. That really didn't have to. You know, I'm sorry, sir. Oh, for sure. Clint? Hey, Andrew. Uh, Clint Stewart, brother of Cliff Stewart. I have to say thank you, thank you, thank you. I uh, appreciate your letter, uh, for you being an expert in the industry, and for you being a patriot of the United States. Uh, I, I know your background and the things that you do. Thank you so very much. Heartfelt thank you to you. And, Clint, it was hard because, you know, I talked to Clint, your brother, a lot, and I'd ask, how's he doing? And that's a question that's a hard to answer, especially for a brother. Um, you know, there, his brother's in prison, not yeah. by any doing of being, you know, completely wrongfully accused. And uh, that's, um, again, I apologize for that. Dave? Andrew, this is David Zerpolo, and I just want to echo what the sentiment of the rest of the guys and say thank you very much for taking the time to come to court, taking the time tonight. You've been a supporter of us before the trial, after the trial, up through today, and that really means a lot, and it really touches our hearts. Thank you again. You're so welcome. All right, and ladies and gentlemen, feel free to dial into this show tonight at 646-200-0628, 646-200. 0628. We say a lot of times we have unsung heroes and advocates that are behind the scenes, if you will, doing more uh, to make an impact. And uh, Andrew Averelli definitely fits that description of the heroes of this nation uh, and the voice now, whether they tried to silence you then, uh, that silence is broken tonight here on AJC Radio. And we're very, uh, very grateful that you're here, Andrew. And we're going to now dig into this story. I'm going to get it, David. Uh, Banks going to get into some dialogue with you. We're going to chime in here and there, and uh, let's go forward. Let's tell this story. David, go ahead. Hey, Andrew, I'll start going over a little bit of your background. Uh, is it correct you've been in the staffing industry for now probably nearly 26 years? 26 years, that is correct. Okay, I just uh, uh, computed that from your, yeah from the letter. It's been a long time, uh, obviously. Uh, and also, uh, one thing you what made you such a dangerous witness to the government as as you alluded to in the letter, that you uh, you were a member of the FBI's in, FBI's InfraGuard for almost nine years at the, at that time, and you had assisted the FBI in staffing related fraud investigations. Is that correct? That is a correct, one hundred percent correct. So uh, obviously, you were extremely an extremely dangerous witness to the government, knowing uh, the government knew that if your credentials got before a jury and it says I've worked for the FBI on staffing related fraud and this is not staffing related fraud, it would have clearly uh, destroyed the government's case. If you could for a moment give me a little more of your, your overall background. I could read it from the letter, but I'll let you uh, tell me a little more about your, your, your overall background. You know, this, I, I love what I do. I feel very grateful to God that I am able to do what I do, giving the gift of employment to someone and putting them in a position and staffing them. It's, it's a great honor for me. I feel, really feel like it's a service 
and uh, I don't feel like I go to work. I feel like I go do something that I'm very passionate and love to do. The FBI case that we did, we were part of, um, was an elaborate sting operation that had uh, illegal uh, immigrants here uh, that were in positions that put the United States at risk. And through our efforts, we were able to break that organization up, and over 110 um, people were removed from the United States and sent back uh, that were uh, fictitiously here. So we knew the staffing industry. We knew all the intricate ins and outs and how business practices are, are done. We know the industry. We know the standards, and we know the practices. It's been what we've been doing and what I've been doing for the last 26 years of my life. Right, right. Now, I'm going to get into the central charge of the government. I want you to, if you could, comment on this. Now, it was the government's allegation that the only reason staffing companies extended us credit, they alleged that we told the staffing company, we induced them into doing business with with us by asserting we had a current or impending contract with a large federal agency, and that was the only reason they decided to extend us credit. Can you comment on that? So the first thing is that's ludicrous. No one puts a gun to the head of a staffing firm and says, you must offer us credit. That's a voluntary business decision a staffing firm does. They see an opportunity to make money, and it's for profit. Don't kid yourself. They're making a, mar- a margin. They're making spread on that. And they move forward with it. Enticing. Yeah, and- you can't entice someone. It's, it's either it's a business practice decision that we make to extend you credit on all the resources that we have. Pure and simple. That's the essence of staffing. It goes back to the Roman times of 2,500 years ago. Same story. Right. And that is, I said, that was the, essentially the, the charge the government put before the jury. Well, these seven companies, these guys really didn't have any software. You've seen the software, but the government's like, uh, these guys didn't really have any software. They were just duping staffing companies. Now, one thing people don't know, uh, but the government tried to assert that, he comes in court, AUSA Kirsch comes in court and says, uh, well, nobody got fabulously wealthy. Well, that's because the staffing company paid their employees. Uh, and obviously, we're anticipating gaining business and uh, from everything, all the business development and sales effort that we're doing. And it's not uncommon uh, – for the government, we were not a household name, so some of these agencies were asking us to do some things to the software to kind of prove the software. We were willing to do that, uh, anticipating that we extended ourselves through uh, staffing companies because we needed uh, workers to finish this so we could actually gain a contract. But sadly enough, in the government's case, the government's own witnesses admitted during trial they were not even involved in the transaction because in almost all cases, the credit department, and they admitted this during trial, made the decision to do credit based on 
their review of Dun & Bradstreet credit reports, and many of them would offer us, they turned us down, well, can you guys put 10000 down? They tried to work certain things uh, based on a strictly business proposition. One guy said they invested in these type of companies because they, they might be missing out on the next Microsoft. So there's entrepreneurial and uh, profit-based calculus in these decisions. Uh, is, is that typically how what happens uh, when you guys evaluate uh, uh, biz, doing business with um, the more riskier startups? And absolutely, you don't want to miss the next Microsoft, the next Oracle, the next, you know, Amazon. Imagine uh, we had a ch- we had a chance way in my early in my career to staff Yahoo. Um, they didn't have any money, and they wanted us to front the money. Well, then they couldn't pay us, so they offered us stock. That's normal business. And Yahoo hits it out of the park, and along the way, guess who makes money? The staffing firm. We make money. So that's industry average. That's industry-specific work that's done. And what you did was no different than that. There's companies like Surge of You that we extended credit to that had a product, we didn't ever see the product, unlike yours. We saw your product. We knew what your product was capable of doing. We extended credit to Surge View, and they went bankrupt. They couldn't pay their bill. No one went to prison for that, but you guys did. How? What changes in the industry, specific to your case and specific to Surge View? It doesn't make sense. It, it defies logic. And, uh, Andrew, this is Cliff. Uh, nice to talk to you again, brother. Um, I wanted to, you know, get into, you know, you're talking about profits and margins and things of that nature. And basically what these staffing companies that did business with IRP Solutions, what at the end of the day that they lost? Because we look at the IRP5 today after spending eight years wrongfully in prison. They get out and the judge still has a restitution on top on, on their head on top of the, you know, the fact that they spent the eight years wrongfully. So you add insult to injury saying, well, hey, now you got to pay these staffing companies back that in the first case, you know, uh, they, they, they do all of their business off a line of credit, only paying the interest of the money, you know, that they put up. Uh, and then now the restitution, who is this restitution supposedly going to if, you know, you and I had this conversation that the staffing companies would not touch if the government came back and said, here's all the money that uh, that uh, you marked as a loss from IRP Solutions. Here's a check for all that money back. You know, uh, we've had the conversation that there's no way that the staffing companies will even put themselves in that position to have to go back and try to reconcile the books. And I, I think you said they only have six years to do that, if I'm, uh, if I, if I, if I'm quoting you correctly. But correct. What, and, and, where is the restitution and, going? Well, Cliff, that you, you, you again are right on. First of all, it's past the threshold. You, you've extended credit. I mean, even in a bankruptcy case, if I bankrupt myself personally, within seven years, my bankruptcy is what? Discharged. For a right. business, typically, typically, you're going to write off that debt between 24 and 36 months. And if you take that number back, 
I don't know how you account for it. There is no legal accounting mechanism to try to pay restitution, and wouldn't the restitution actually be the money you had out instead of the margin and plus plus? The number would be greatly reduced that way, but they didn't reduce it. So now on insult to injury, you can't account for it. The IRS will you're you're going to guaranteed an audit from the IRS because you can't legally account for the restitution number. Then it's an inflated number because the num that number isn't actually the number they're out because there was margin tacked onto that. So again. Insult to injury. Where is the business practice? And someone's saying, well, that's not the actual number. The actual number is X. And what are you going to do with X? You can't do anything with it because you've already written it off as bad debt. Unbelievable. Right. Well, the, uh, the question then is, Where's the restitution? Yeah, where where is that, it? Who's it going to? Who, what pot is it sitting in at this point? It's going to the U.S. Treasury. Wow. That's where it's going. Sick. It's absolutely unbelievable to me that, and this is why, when you hear Andrew Averelli explain the breakdown of business, of staffing companies, this is why the testimony was not only needed, it was critical to support the case of the IRP-5. And again, as Kendrick said, uh, Andrew, not your fault. Your apology is sincerely felt. But the apology needs to come from the government of the United States for the conduct that was demonstrated in this trial. That's the problem. Uh, Andrew Averelli was dressed for court, showed up to take the stand, and to tell his viewpoint as an expert that these guys did nothing wrong. There was no crime that we have heard that echoed with every law firm, every uh, person we met with on Capitol Hill, members of Congress saying the same thing. Their attorneys, their uh, directors, their chief of staff, and the members themselves, where is the crime? So you have to conclude uh, that with Mr. Avarelli's testimony to a jury that has no knowledge of the industry to be given that information flips the case upside down. Coming back with us, uh, Andrew, you're still good on time? We're still good on time. Okay, we're going to come back, folks. This is, uh, this is building up here, and uh, we are privileged tonight to have Andrew Avarelli, an expert really a advocate for justice as he witnessed injustice at its highest level, the case of the RP5. We're coming back with him and the RP5. Hang on. This is AJC Radio. no loose ends in TV procedural dramas. At the end of the hour, the bad guy always gets what's coming to him. Unfortunately, the real world is a lot more complicated. We know from the work of the Innocence Project and other organizations in the Innocence Network that the system doesn't always get it right. 
According to the National Registry of Exoneration, since 1989, nearly 2,000 people have been exonerated of crimes they didn't commit. What people don't realize is a good number of those people pleaded guilty to crimes even though they were innocent. In fact, in nearly 10% of the nation's DNA exonerations, people pleaded guilty to serious crimes and agreed to serve significant prison time because the system is stacked against them, especially if they are poor and people of color. That's right. The stakes are so high that we have innocent men and women agreeing to serve long prison sentences. A system that puts that much pressure on people to plead guilty is a problem. Visit guiltypleadproblem.org to learn more about the men and women who are pressured into pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit. And join us in demanding that our elected officials do something to protect the innocent people who get caught up in a broken criminal justice system. Thank you. The United States of America incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. In fact, the U.S. hosts more prison inmates than all other developed nations combined. As of 2010, the world population was over 6.8 billion people, with an estimated 9.8 million in jail. This figure, compiled by the International Center for Prison Studies, refers both to individuals held in jail awaiting trial and inmates serving time after sentencing. So there are 9.8 million human beings on planet Earth living inside of cages that we know of. In 2010, the U.S. was home to about 309 million people, 4.5% of the world's total population, but housed 23% of the world's prisoners. So take a moment to think about what this means. It means we imprison more people than enormous autocratic countries like China. We imprison more people than Russia. Compared to the size of our population, our rate of imprisonment dwarfs our closest allies, like the United Kingdom, France, and Canada. As of 2010, there were over 1.6 million post-trial inmates serving sentences in America's state and federal facilities. This number does not include those being detained pre-trial or those on probation. The most unique feature of incarceration in America is the large and active role of our federal government. In most countries, crime is reacted to at the local or regional level, whereas the American government finances and legislates a significant portion of law enforcement at the national level. State governments still do their fair share of incarceration, though. California and Texas incarcerate more than other states with over 171,000 inmates each. Florida is a close third with over 103,000 prisoners. But no single state locks up more people than the federal government with over 208,000 inmates. Perhaps the nickname Land of the Free, Home of the Brave, should be updated. Though I suppose you need to be brave to endure the highest likelihood of incarceration the world has ever known. Prisons are not what we think about when we think of America, and they shouldn't have to be. A free nation shouldn't imprison so many people, and a fiscally responsible nation can't afford to. With close to $40 billion a year in state correctional spending, the financial costs are obvious and staggering alone, but the human costs are often underappreciated. 1.6 million fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of American families are incarcerated. It's time for people to realize that the criminal justice system in America is desperately in need of reform. I wanted to be in the military since I was since I was a kid. 
I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight, where the discussion is heating up here with the IRP-5 and our very special guest, Andrew Avarelli. Uh I'll tell you what, folks, if you know anything or you don't know anything, what we've heard tonight in regards to the testimony that was voided and denied by Federal Judge Christine Arguello but Mr. Andrew Avarelli, I'm going to tell you what, what I've heard tonight already uh, makes it very clear that we're looking at a not guilty verdict coming back. And the reason the efforts were made to keep Mr. Avarelli off that stand, it would have closed the prosecution of the government of the United States case. And uh, Mr. Avarelli has made it clear and, and speaks very uh, well to that fact. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much uh, for coming back with us. Uh, this is definitely informative uh, to our listeners, and we're, we're very, very grateful uh, for your insight on this on this topic, this discussion. Uh, we appreciate it so much tonight from AJC and uh, the RP5, without question. Our privilege. Okay, David, I guess we want to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, uh, I, w- I want to go into, get into the government claiming that these timesheets, uh, the timesheet issue, uh, what they claimed at one point, and uh, you discussed it in your letter, was double billing. Now, I want to lay the fact, I want to start out with, uh, we've been in the IT industry a long time. Uh, many of the IRP6, irp five have actually worked for multiple contracts simultaneously, uh, giving us the opportunity, if you're working for three different companies, and we have some guys sitting on the uh, AJC staff that have done the exact same thing because they're all IT professionals, or some of them sitting here. And that's something we, we want to talk about. Uh, first off, is when a timesheet is submitted, uh, that is an employee of the staffing company submitting a timesheet to its employer. Is that correct? That is correct. Exactly. Now, they claim that the money, people, Jet Sarakin made a comment. He said, well, what we're guilty of keeping people employed. Uh, people worked at the company, submitted timesheets to their employers, and obviously the staffing company is going to bill back for the hours worked. Uh, but at the end of the day, the staffing company paid their employees 
based on time sheets that the employee filled out and had signed by the supervisor. So the, the, the employee affirmed that they worked those hours and they were going to get paid for those hours as long as the company approved or the supervisor approved for them to get paid for those hours. So uh, the government's uh, assertion, uh, he would have to say that the employee – all the employees, which is uh, probably around 42, if, if memory serves, falsified timesheets. Well, that would have been a massive conspiracy. The government at no time did he put up evidence that the people working at the company falsified timesheets. He tried to, uh, for the narrow issues of some people who build for multiple projects there, uh, whether it was the working on the version that we were working on for the New York City Police Department or the Department of Homeland Security, uh, we allowed uh, some people to bill for both of those projects due to the fact we didn't really want to hire anybody else, and they're already knowledgeable on the company uh, about the company, about the software, and we felt like we could be a little more productive and fast in delivering what uh, the NYPD and DHS was requesting of us if we allowed those people to work. Um, the government tried to make hay out of that. Well, you guys are, uh, these people are billing too many hours. How can you work 24 hours in a day? Well, you can work 24 hours in a day if you work multiple projects, IT projects, which is something customary in the industry. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you've seen uh, with regard to that? So, again, industry normal. These are normal industry practices, and it's built into the workflow. So we identify a resource, put them out on a contract. That person works hours. He then submits a timesheet. The timesheet has, in the workflow, has an, a, a person that approves his work, meaning he was there on the times that he said he was going to be there and that he produced work that was of the quality and consistency that that person wanted, approves the timesheet, workflow then moves it to the staffing firm. The staffing firm then pays the consultant that was working on the project and immediately invoices the client for the hours worked. Remember, there's a margin in between what they're paying the consultant and what they're charging the client. And that's called margin or spread. Very, very normal. Beyond that, we have multiple people at Remy that do this for three or four different clients. And sometimes the rates even change from client to client or if they're working on site or if they're working remotely. So this is, again, normal, normal staffing business practices, yet in this case, it's abnormal. It's fictitious. It's double billing. It's, I don't know what it is. It's, in, in, in this case's viewpoint, it's an abomination, and it's not. It's normality. Yeah, right. And uh, it, it appears uh, in our jury system that the government sometimes just throws something that that the average person said that looks suspicious so they must have been doing something wrong uh and then to not allow us to provide a witness 
that could break these things down even better than than we could uh, to explain that this is normal operating procedures, standard business practices. We were deprived of the jury was deprived, and and in many cases you can't blame the jury because uh, I don't know if you know this, but they came back with a question during their deliberations asking, is this all the evidence we get to see? Because Judge Arguello would not permit much of our evidence to go back to the jury. And wow. uh, your te- and your testimony would have obviously been very relevant, and it's something that they could not unsee or unhear. And right. the judge did not want them in a position to view a strong witness that is that had assisted the FBI in staffing fraud investigations how how much more of an expert and credibility uh could you actually get in our case the government knew it the judge knew it and they were not going to allow mm. they took just like they took our debt and criminalized us having debt and we had every reason to believe we were going to anticipate a contract and that's something we'll be getting into in the, in the coming weeks but to criminalize our debt, then they criminalized the normal staffing industry practices and spun it around for the jury to make it look like something evil or nefarious or criminal was going on because we were functioning under standard staffing industry business practices. Business practices, I would say, I would like to say that we we're very much aware of. We've worked with staffing companies many years over our, our IT consulting careers. We know how the pra- business works, and we know how the practices work. So uh, it's just another example of how the government wanted to malign us in front of the jury and destroy any chance we had to uh, to, to win that trial. And, and getting rid of you was a huge part of it. And David, if, I don't know if you can remember because it's many years back. I, I shared with you. I, I shared with you and said, David, I can explain staffing to a six-year-old. It's a very simple business. So when I get on the stand, I'm really not concerned about the jury not understanding this case. The biggest problem I had right. was I didn't get to explain it. Exactly. Well. David, to Andrew's, uh, Andrew, to your point, this is what I said. If you know something or you don't know anything, this is common sense. And people can relate to common sense that these guys had a product. How This is mind-boggling to me, to the federal judge, Christine Aguil. How do you conspire? But the prosecution, the government of the United States, have Mr. Avarelli show up for court with his knowledge and you not allow the testimony for the jury to consider. If you have a case, Mr. Kirsch, Mr. John Walsh, put your case on. Your case is strong, it'll, it'll, it'll fall. It will, these guys would be found guilty because you've proven beyond a reasonable doubt that they were guilty. But you cheated. 
you cheated. Imagine so, this one. Imagine this one question being asked to me on the stand. Have you seen a demonstration of this product? Mm-hmm. And my answer would be yes. What happens to the case at that point? It's over. It's done. Done. This is why we. Yes. Yes. And I just want to reiterate uh, to the public just how egregious go to trial. You think you're going to get a fair trial. You think you're going to be able to present witnesses. The Constitution gives you that right. Uh, The truth is more likely, the Supreme Court, again, I want to reiterate, is more likely to be arrived at by hearing the testimony of all persons including Andrew Alvarelli, of competent understanding, who may seem to have knowledge of the facts involved in a case. Uh, Judge Arguello pretty much said, uh, you know, you should have notified us about this expert witness. Well, the law said we didn't have to notify. The Tenth Circuit itself says a defendant is allowed to keep his cards close to the vest. This is exact words from the Tenth Circuit. When, when they're dealing it with the expert witness in the, in the, in the uh, famed Nacho trial here in Colorado, uh, they're allowed to. We don't have to divulge expert witnesses. And then that information is also in the congressional advisory notes to, saying that uh, we never have to divulge anything about an expert witness. He can be called at the time. He can just be put on, on the witness list, and you don't have to provide any additional information. They knew this. They violated the law, and as a result of it, we spent eight years in prison. And, uh, and this sort of lawlessness, nobody's above the law. Yeah, judges and prosecutors are above the law. We watched it firsthand. Unfortunately, does that make them all bad? No, it doesn't. But the fact of the matter is nobody wants to do something about an injustice when it's such a blatant, gross violation of the law. And I said, I, 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 obviously, I'm upset about it. I lost eight years of my life due to a crooked judge and a prosecutor not allowing us to present a complete defense. It's just an aberration to the justice system. Like I said, I'm I'm just disgusted with the whole thing. And as it should be. As it should be. Agreed. I'm I'm sitting here, Andrew, and to the RP5 and to all of our listeners across this country – this is why Judge Christina Aguayo should be off the bench. These are, these are premeditated acts of injustice. This is, a, this is a scheme that you brought into play to make sure that these men were found guilty. I'll tell you what. This is sickening. And, David, to your point of, of, of true justified uh, emotion, eight years because a judge decided not to honor the bench. A prosecutor decided not to honor the oath and to first and foremost seek the truth. In any proceedings, that is your job. They failed to do that. And you went, a, you went a step further, and you were unable to uh, get a conviction without the schemes, if you will, of what you did. William, 
You know, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to this, and you can't help but to be mad. But I, I, was, I, was, I was thinking of one of the things. We talked to one of the jurors after the case, and they asked the question. I mean, he was really dumbfounded. He was like, where was, we were wondering where was the, the defense was, and you hear it. And we showed him the letter, Andrew's letter. We showed him the letter with Remy Corp, everything. And the man, I, I, I remembered looking at the man's face, and you watched everything about him change. Because at that point, he realized he was sitting there saying, we weren't given everything. And they, he already asked the question. He said, we were literally asking. The jurors are asking themselves, where is the defense? And now as you listen to Andrew tell his story, and you realize how much this would have been this was open and done, open and shut with Andrew's Andrew five minutes into this conversation, five minutes of him being on the stand. And so I'm sitting here listening to this, and I remember talking to the juror on his front porch, sharing with him that letter, and watching everything about him change, just reading this. And I can only imagine what he would have felt if he would have heard Andrew Ooh. on the stand. And uh, to that point, William, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if it was that juror or maybe another that said if they had seen that letter, yes. that they would have uh, – their 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 result would have been different. Have been different. What, wow. uh, speak to that exactly what yeah, you told so, me. So we were, we were talking to him, and like I said, I handed him the letter. He's sitting there reading it, and I said, would that – what would – if you would have had that, what would – your decision is, he said, my decision would have been totally different. Wow. That is, that is That's damaging. I mean, I mean, the, what word could you, you, I mean, the corruption of the system, the unfairness, the, I mean, you look at this one letter that a juror says, if I would have had that, if nothing else, I would have called the hung jury because reading that letter from an expert in the industry, like Andrew Alberelli would have caused me to make my decision different, it cost you guys eight years in prison because that letter was not allowed to be presented as evidence and because Andrew Alberelli was not allowed to – I mean, his name was given before he said anything. The judge – the prosecutor objected, not because he was uh, – because it was said he was an expert witness. No, I object. We do not want this man on the stand. We don't even want his credentials read before the fact that he was to be presented as an expert witness, it cost you eight years in prison. That is sickening. That there, the, I cannot even come up with a word and expression that with the disgust that I feel from what that juror said about that letter. Well, and Andrew, when you hear that, so let me make sure I'm clear. He did, Andrew Averelli was not allowed to testify nor was his letter put in for the jury to see. Is that correct? That's correct. That is correct, but typically correct. you would yeah, and typically uh Mont, you would ask him to testify about his letter. And as soon right. as he would testify, you'd admit that into evidence. Right. And then the jury would have it. Not only would that they have the letter, but they would also have his testimony, testimony explaining everything in his letter and we would have been able to exhaustively because every wow. every position of the government in the case 
and every theory they presented to the jury was knocked down by Andrew Alvarelli, an expert in the staffing industry. And that was relative probative information that, that went to the heart of the truth, and, and it would help us present a complete defense that we did nothing wrong. The judge and prosecutor, they were thieves. They stole a fair trial. They stole the Constitution. They just did everything. It, it was just, it's just a pure evil process, uh, in my view. They, they, oh, sold, they sold eight years of your life, and that's the thing that, that has been really a pain point. I mean, I'm on the outside looking in, so I can't, I, I can't even imagine being in your shoes. But just listening to this, we have, we have been fighting, or Just Cause has been fighting to push this story out. And when you look at it, this time that we spent tonight – if we we could have spent less time, he could have spent less time on the stand. This would have been done. Well, well, look, uh, Andrew. Uh, again, we're going to be respectful of your time tonight. I cannot tell you, and to our listeners, folks, this is damaging information. Not to the RP five, not to Andrew Everelli. Damaging, painting a clear picture of acts of premeditation here. Why was it so important that the jurors not hear from Andrew Everett? Well, we got the answer right now. Go ahead, Andrew. It, it, was, it, it was irrefutable testimony that no one got to hear. And if you look historically, the English pride themselves on you're guilty until proven innocent. Well, back in the late 1700s, we decided we wanted the opposite. You are innocent until proven guilty. That's what our country is based on, except in this right. case. You were guilty walking into that courtroom, and there wasn't going to hear – they weren't going to hear any evidence that would have found you innocent. And, you know, seeing David eight years later, got a little bit of gray in his hair. You know, it's been eight years since I've seen him. That's a hard picture for me because America and, and we let them down. You know, we're this country right. that's supposed to be innocent until you're proven guilty. And walking in that courtroom, there was five innocent men. And it cost David eight Period. years of his life. Period. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and I think what's tragic, I said this once, I'll say it again. The presumption of innocence. I'd like to say the train left the station a long time ago. I'm going to go far back and say the buggy left the farm a long time ago. That's how long it's been since we have seen the presumption of innocence. Right now, we have issues in this country with some law enforcement, not all, that can shoot a man seven times in his back, presuming his guilt. We got George Floyd accused of writing a bad check or using counterfeit $20 bill. Come to find out, $20 bill was real. He lost his life with a knee on the neck. What's going on in this country? We got a problem. And to Andrew's point, you're guilty to proven innocent. Period. What else you can say to that, and Andrew, we're going to 
give you an opportunity to give a closing statement, if you would. As you sit here tonight, and again, thank you so very much for what you've done and contributing. Please know this. You always have a voice on AJC Radio and a Just Cause organization. In any situation, we welcome you back here. Uh, and I mean that. When you hear what we've just in this discussion in the last two hours, give us your closing thoughts. Number one, the problem with the system. And do we see any light at the end of the tunnel at this point, in your view? Wow. This case shook my beliefs on so many fronts. I love my country. I believed in my country. We've lost our way. Our experiment of America is gone. It, it didn't work out. It, it's not working out. We incarcerate more people than any other place in the world. We feed them spoiled, terrible, terrible food. We treat them horribly. And we're supposed to be one of the most civilized countries in the world. That's not the case. We... Mm-hmm kill people in the streets and randomly get off without any punishments. And it continues and it continues and it continues. And if you look at it, if you set a compass and we're going to go in this direction, where we are in 2020 with this country, I, I, I don't know what to say and I don't know how it fixes it. I do not know how we unwind what has been wound up and the injustices that have occurred for this length of time. It's, it's saddening. It's sickening. Looking at David's face eight years later, it's an injustice, yet it's all too common now. And maybe we need a hard reset in this country. Maybe we need to reset the compass and say, this experiment we've done for the last you know, couple hundred years didn't work. We got to start this mm-hmm. over and rebuild it the right way because this case is, is not uncommon. This case is really the problem. How do, how do five innocent men go to jail, go to prison, federal prison, not even jail, federal prison, for not doing anything wrong. That's hmm. the question America needs to ask. Absolutely. Andrew, thank you so much uh, for your time, your insight, your perspective on this case. And I'll tell you what, our listeners uh, have been informed tonight uh, of, this, of this issue, and I cannot thank you enough for your expertise on this matter. Uh, again, you're welcome to come back anytime as this story continues to unfold. And thank you again for taking time out of your schedule for being a part of this very important program. I think we'll take a lot from it and from your perspective of what you've brought to this show. We appreciate it so very much. My privilege. You're so welcome. All right. Take care, Andrew, and have a good night. You bet. Thank you. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Andrew Everelli. When I tell you, an expert, an expert. And we're going to come back with closing thoughts from the RP5 
this has been informative on a level we couldn't foresee. And now you see very clearly 2020 vision, Andrew Avarelli on the stand in the RP5 case means an acquittal, a not guilty verdict. This judge, Christina Aguayo, Matthew Kirst, Sunetta Hazra, made a decision to make sure that didn't happen, that a fair trial was not given. Every one of them should be disbarred, and Judge Aguero should be removed from the bench. This is AJC Radio Closing Thoughts right after this. We know you care. Now is time. Time to change the fate of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders faced with trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States. I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population, but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call 1-855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call 1-855-529-4252. It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we find ourselves in, unfortunately, familiar territory of injustice. We find that a federal judge by the name of Christine Arguello 
conspired with the government of the United States, Matthew Kirsch, John Walsh, and Sunita Hazra in a situation where our very special guest tonight, Andrew Avarelli, gave a true dissection, if you will, of how injustice looks. A gentleman that I believe without question would have given credence and complete credibility to the case of the RP5 and their innocence without question. Kendrick, as we were going through this tonight, I'll tell you what, I'm enlightened more now than I've ever been. And I see why with the corruption of this entire process, why Mr. Avarelli was simply denied. I'll tell you what, Lamont. Off the evidence that, that I knew before tonight, even before hearing Andrew, there was overwhelming evidence that we didn't commit a crime. But when I heard what I heard tonight, if he would have got on that stand, I mean, it would have been over with. I mean, I'm, I'm lear- I learned so much new stuff myself that I didn't know because I'm, I'm not in the staff industry. I don't know. But if he would have just been able to speak, and they knew that's the problem that really matters. The government knew that if they let Andrew and Kelly, let's not forget, she was going to talk to that worked for the same for for Andrew. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way that they could have finagled and well, and dirty underhand tricks to, to get us into prison. Well, the jury proved their point that they were uncertain when they requested, "Is there anything else?" Oh, there's plenty of else, but the the judge simply refused it. The letter itself, not only did you deny Mr. Avarelli the opportunity to speak, you refused the letter in which he spoke not to be allowed. Dave, your closing thoughts very quickly. When I was sitting here tonight, it just took me right back to that day in court to see what happened there. We were sitting there. I was like, what's going on? Why can't he testify? And here we are going through it and seeing that that testimony would have sent us home right away. Period. We never would have been into prison, and they stole those eight years from us. Demetrius. And remember, when we were, when Andrew, like he said earlier, in great, great vivid event in reality, they were ushered out. The jury was ushered out. They were so confused. Hearing what Andrew was going to speak to on that day, this would have annihilated the Matthew Kirsch knew it. Uh, the judge knew it. She wouldn't allow the testimony. It, As I'm reliving it on that day, as you mentioned, Dave, it just brings up a lot of anger to know that this that trial would have ended that day. Well, Everyone knew it. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, to Andrew Avarelli, again, a very gracious gentleman, uh, let me be clear. No need for an apology. Your voice was heard tonight and will be heard all over the United States of America and around the world at AJCRadio.com. Feel free, ladies and gentlemen, to go back, listen to this show. And, uh, again, a very special thanks to Andrew Avarelli for taking time tonight uh, to share his perspective. And he is as, as disappointed in a system in which he believed in. But he made it clear, we say it all the time on this show, America has lost her way in the criminal justice system of this country. 
And as he, and I'll say this, as the RP5 of the poster child of true injustice. And this message will be told. Ladies and gentlemen, tune in next week again as we continue the unfolding of this story of the RP5 and the injustice. And definitely tune in for us at the top of every show. Pastor Rose Banks. What you didn't know about the criminal justice system. A mother, a pastor, and a voice speaks out about the injustice she has lived. That's every week on this program. Until next time, America, stay safe. This is AJC Radio.